0: Difficult decisions face you in, in, on a personal level. and This was very personal and, and professional. I had a whole decision tree process that I, that I went
1: through. A question asked courageously, answered honestly, and lived authentically can change your whole life. For me, that question was, how can I use what I have, what I love, and what I know to bless the lives of others? The School for Good Living and this podcast are one answer to that question. Hi, I'm Brian Miller. I know that the world can work for everyone, but that it won't until it works for you. I've created this to help you make the difference you were born to make. It's a series of conversations with thought leaders who are moving humanity forward. And in each episode, I explore their lives and the work they do. I also ask them to break down how they've gotten their books written, published, and read. This podcast is all about exploring the magic and mystery and sometimes the misery of the creative process. So if you have a mission, a message, and a motivation to share it, this podcast is for you. Welcome to the School for Good Living. Today, my guest is Beth Comstock. Beth is an extraordinary and inspiring leader. She's a discoverer, a storyteller, a connector, a learner. Beth spent a 27-year career at GE, a nearly 130-year-old company with hundreds of thousands of employees. Beth became a vice chair, and the first female vice chair in General Electric's history, and she served the last 10 years of her career there as its chief marketing officer, which is amazing because she didn't have an MBA, didn't attend business school, hadn't taken a marketing class prior to that. Her oversight also included GE Lighting, which is the $3 billion business unit, as well as GE Ventures, and Beth was responsible for leading GE's business innovations. Oh yeah, and she worked at NBC Universal as president of Integrated Media, where she was a leader, part of a small executive team who founded Hulu. So, you know, just a bunch of change and innovation and creation there. Beth is author of Imagine It Forward, Courage, Creativity, and the Power of Change. I believe you'll find this interview valuable if you lead teams, if you do branding and culture work, if you're involved in marketing, communications, or storytelling. Beth's perspectives and experience are incredible. In this interview, I ask Beth to tell me about turning down Steve Jobs, not once, but twice when he tried to recruit her to work at Apple and really the decision-making process behind that. As part of that, she shares how to make significant decisions without regret. Beth also talks about giving yourself permission, something that can be incredibly liberating as you move forward. Permission to fail, permission to succeed, permission to be yourself. Beth also talks about her creative process. Beth shares how to enter a new market. I love her term that marketing is about living in the market. Beth also talks about how to develop social courage, how to connect and engage with other people, a skill that can be developed. And is especially valuable for introverts. Beth also talks about how to use tension to generate innovation and how to deal with conflict once you surface it or it surfaces. She also talks about how to create an environment where people tell each other the truth, where high performance becomes the norm. I'm so grateful for the opportunity to sit with Beth for this interview. I debated whether or not to publish this podcast because the audio quality isn't what it is for my other interviews. When I went to record this, Beth and I were together in the same room. We had the headphones on. I could hear her through my recorder, but I didn't push record on my podcasting machine. I did have a backup. My backup was my iPhone, just a voice memo. So it did capture the audio. You are able to hear it, but I know it's not the great quality that was possible. And for that to you, Beth, I apologize to you, the listener. I apologize. It is such a fantastic interview. There's so many takeaways. Beth's life experience is so profound that I want to share it, even if it might be a little challenging to listen to on the basis of audio quality. When I listen to it through headphones, I find that it's pretty okay. But at any rate, I hope that you are able to focus on what Beth is saying and get the benefit of the amazing insights that she shares. So disclaimer, and uh, just to anybody who's podcasting, having a backup is always a good idea, knowing what you're doing using checklists. Okay. With that, thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoy this conversation with my new friend, Beth Comstock. Beth, welcome to the School for Good Living. Thanks, Brian. Beth, will you tell me, please? what's life about?
0: Life to me is about discovering and connecting.
1: When you meet someone new or you're introduced, maybe you're introduced from the stage, how do you like to describe yourself? How do you like to be described?
0: That's changed a lot for me in the past couple of years. I think professionally I would always say I'm a discoverer. I like to discover what's next. I think I am Rethinking what that is, I since I put out my book and put myself into that process, I think I've much more returned to a description of myself as a storyteller. That's something that I um, really like and had lost a bit of sight of. And I do think a connector. I I really value connecting to other people, learning from them. And then maybe the last thing I maybe if I were to I'm sort of doing this out loud a bit as I as I'm thinking it. I, I think maybe if I were to had to choose one word, it would probably be a learner. I think that's probably been the most consistent thing for me throughout time.
1: You know, your book, Imagine It Forward, I really loved this book, and I Thank learned you. I learned a lot from you, which is no surprise, you being a learner. Tell me, please, who did you write this book for and why? What did you want it to do for the reader? I was very deliberate
0: in who we wrote it for. I had a, a great co-author in Tal Raz. And my vision, from the reason I wrote the book is I, I was really targeting to people in the middle of their career, in the middle of the organization, who so much is expected, especially right now with, with the pressures of change and innovation, and we expect so much of the people in the middle of our companies and trying to get ahead in their career, but we don't give people the encouragement or the tools they need, and I witnessed that in my career. So what I tried to do was to go back in time to take myself back at some of those struggles that I know know from working with people and think through how did I deal with it? What did I learn? And what I tried to do was to share very candid and sometimes painful reflections. It wasn't, it's not, as you know, it's not all stories of all success. And I felt that was really important was to share the, those kind of painful lessons as a form of encouragement. And then secondarily, I'd say I, I wrote the book for people who lead teams as a way to remind them that they have great talent, that they need to, they need to find a way to uh, empower. Yeah,
1: I, I really, I think part of what I enjoyed about the book and appreciated was that level of honesty. And you talk about some of these things were painful time, but for me as a reader, that was what made it very real. You know, like I I found, oh, there's a a human being that had an incredible set of experiences who put them down and now I get to benefit from reading those. But I understand the book not only contains some painful experiences and lessons, but you also talk about the act of writing the book and the acknowledgments. I was really intrigued by this. You write, getting the tangled hairball of thoughts out of my head and into this book ranks among the hardest things I've ever done. (laughs) I wonder what made getting this out in, into a real thing that people then could read and engage with what made that so hard for you
0: oh so much i mean one i was just so close to the stories and that was where having a collaborator was so and so important and Tal britain had co-written several books so having his expertise he, he'd put out a book i hadn't but just having somebody go nah mm, that that doesn't resonate mm, you're too close to that <laughs> to challenge me to you know it was just it was also hard to take the the emotion, the personal experiences that I lived, and then try to get them into his head enough so that he could, he and I could write it together. Mm-hmm. And if it wasn't resonating with him, how was it ever going to resonate with anyone else? So, in some ways, I, I think I told him, I said, "This is like an autopsy, but I'm alive." Um, <laughs> okay. I, I think That's I called it a, no, a psychological autopsy is maybe how I how I summed it up because he really probed deeply. In a way, in fact, that was one of the first questions he asked me when I met him. Our um, editor had recommended him. And we met, and and he goes, have you ever been in therapy? I was like, what kind of question is that? He said, it's just important for me to understand how you view therapy. And then later I was like, "Ah, now I understand why you asked that, because you give people these psychological autopsies.
1: That is great. So I want to ask you about before we go too far, I want to ask you about Stinky Cheese
0: <laughs> because <laughs> I strange. loved
1: this and what it points to about, well, I'll say that, but will you tell me, Stinky Cheese plays an important role in your in your book and I think in your career, yeah. maybe. Will you talk about why that is?
0: I had just gotten, I had just gone from NBC to GE, had been there several years and got a new boss, Jeff Immelt, who replaced the iconic Jack Welch. And so much changed in the company. And Jeff had, I was doing communications and advertising. With Jack Welch leaving, we were like, who are we? I mean, he was this iconic CEO. Jeff wasn't known. The company, we were after 9-11. The company was in just a lot of, it was just a challenging time. And so I had come across a cultural anthropologist by the name of Cla- Pi. And, Where
1: does one meet a cultural anthropologist?
0: Well, I had met him through uh, some friends I had. Uh, some friends I had at Procter and Gamble. I, I, they brought him to a conference I attended, and I was so taken by what he had to say. He talked about your brain. I, I've always been deep in uh, neuroscience and behavioral science, and he just really resonated with some of the work he had done at Procter and Gamble and other companies, and we I was like, we need somebody like that. I don't know why. we just need somebody like this guy who can come in and kind of psychoanalyze the culture
1: and, and somebody and if I person, did he really wear a cape? He
0: did. He wore a velvet cape. Probably the only person to haveG was a bit um square. And so <laughs> most consultants didn't wear velvet, let alone a velvet cape. And he's French, and he talked in a kind of crazy, had crazy phrases of uh, and ways of talking. But I just felt he could offer us something. And so I brought him in to meet with my new boss, Jeff ML. And I was like, I'm going to hire this guy. I just wanted you to, to know. I wanted you to get a sense of what we're going to do. And, you know, I kind of was hoping he would bless it. And the initial meeting with Jeff didn't start off very well. And it ended, ended well. But basically what we did is we brought uh, Cl- Cliteric, Dr. I called him Dr. Rapai. We brought him in and helped psychoanalyze the culture to really understand what's important. What are the strengths of this culture? That we cannot mess with. And what are the things that must change? And this moment of change seems like an opportunity to take 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 advantage of. So that was really the, the starting point. And he had one of the he told a lot of stories to make his point. And one of the stories was about stinky cheese, which in, in essence it basically said he his work was to get to the essence of, of what was going on, the code. He would deliver, his promise to us was, I'll deliver the code of G E. Well, he said, let me give you an example. For example, cheese. Americans, they don't like their cheese anyway but refrigerated. They don't like it to be alive. To Americans, they wrap their cheese in saran wrap. The cheese is dead. But the French, their cheese is alive. They keep it on the counter. They don't refrigerate it. Americans, the, the cheese is dead. And it just became this way of talking. And the team I assembled to do this project we we they especially, we all were somewhat skeptical, but every time he'd open his mouth and would say, Let me give you an example, the cheese is stinky, you know, the cheese is dead, we'd be like, Oh my gosh, not this again. <laughs> so you had to you had to work through a lot of things that at first blush seemed weird and bizarre. It was one of the best projects, research projects I was ever a part of. Our team we, we worked six months with him and spent another six months and we got some incredible insights and I learned so much. I learned about taking a risk on somebody that was a little different, doing research that was very non-traditional and we people lie on the ground and tell stories. And I mean, it was very unusual in the context, but it was really, really important.
1: Yeah, that, that was amazing. I mean, reading that and trying to imagine for myself, you know, myself, if we attempted that in our business, you know, and I know many people don't have, many people do, of course, are part of a large organization, but but others aren't. But I think ultimately the size is not what's important, right? It's being willing to invite people into conversations that might challenge them, but that ultimately can point to something deeper than, you know, the superficial conversations that we might have. And and exactly what you said about people, I remember the part of the book with people lying on their back in a conference room. And I think right here you say that he asked them to think, he asked people to instructed to lie on mats on the floor and allow their minds to flow back to the first imprint of GE, that was interesting, almost like trying to recall a previous life or something. It was a bizarre sight, grown men and women in business suits lying on their backs in a conference room doing relaxation to access their innermost feelings about the corporation. After the emotional storytelling, people were like new skin under picked scabs. Mm. But what happened? So you go through this process, which probably wasn't easy given that you're a 300,000 person organization at the time. And as you said, it's a six month engagement, so clearly, you're not talking to every individual, but you're talking to enough to get to something of substance. What does it all yield? What's the final result?
0: Well, I think part of his method was to make people feel so comfortable and to go back to those early remembrances that, you know, he could unlock the code, but it really was about, it was a three-part process. He had this whole theory of three parts of your brain. He had to get people comfortable and they had to open up, which is hard in a corporate setting. And what, what people, what what I appreciated was just the gold of storytelling I, I, for Years afterward, we kept, we had hundreds and thousands of stories in notebooks. I was, they were like gold to me. And hey, what, what were the kind of stories? I mean, people talking about their fears. I remember a consumer saying that, that they felt like they were going to die when they screwed in a light bulb because it was electricity and it was GE that was saving them. There were employees who were saying things like, I'm so proud, you know, that that we our jet engines lift people up and bring them home again and then there were not so good stories there was one woman i remember very vividly it was right it had been soon after 9/11 and she felt the company abandoned her and she had to kind of make her way back to her office and no one at her her none of her colleagues were helping her another another colleague said they cried because they couldn't serve their customers very well, that no one seemed to care. So just that vulnerability, we don't think about that in work, but there was such, the fact that people took the time to do that, I, I think we
1: never took that for granted. Yeah, that, that's incredible. And then and then, if I recall, that was part of the work that led to, you know, kind of this distillation of what GE does or did. And not to make this, a, again, necessarily about GE, but it's illustrative of what any of us can do if we're willing to not look at the, at the what's on the surface of our activities, but what's behind it. And how does that matter to individual lives? And I think you'd come up with like four words about power, move, Heal or something yeah, right, like that. Right. What what was what, was that part of this or was that a different?
0: It, it was. It, it eventually became part of that. So right after this, we didn't have those four words, but we started to to get the essence of that. And one of the lessons is it takes a long. You, this work is is a lot of work. Yeah. We kind of expected okay, stinky cheese man will lie on the floor. Now you give us the code, we're done. Mm-hmm. And the code we had to translate it. I mean, he came back and said, "Here's your culture," but we were about innovation and and the the sense of mission that people felt. The that what I remember one of the things the sweat that people were proud of working really hard and the what, and so we out of it we came up with a, a formula, sort of a mathematical formula about the way people felt about working in the company and and what was sacred and what had to change. And over time, we continued to always keep that core set of words, but then we'd pull different things out where, you know, we ended up at one point saying, you know, build power, move, cure, or kind of the outcomes of what we do. But it always came back to that essence of who are we yeah. and why are we proud to be these people? And I think people underestimate that in branding and culture work is that you can't tell people what to be. They, ha- they have to feel that. They yeah. tell you what they are. And then you work from there if you're going to be successful with these kind of efforts.
1: Yeah, I can can see that. And clearly, to be honest, I didn't expect to spend this much time in an interview on this subject. But I I see there's something that I think is really valuable for anybody who's interested in leading or conscious about building their culture. You know, or just maybe understanding organizations or themselves because of this emotion that's at the center of this. And being able to get down to something like a code. And in the other part of that story, when you talk about when... Uh, Rapai met Jeff, and Jeff was talking about the numbers. Yeah, will you touch a little bit on that?
0: Yeah, I mean, it was the first 15 minutes were just horrible. And Rapai said, "Well, why do people come to work here?" He wanted to know the motivation. And Jeff said, "Well, I want them to come to work here because 10, you know, we're we're trying to drive 10% organic growth." Rapai at me goes like, "No one gets out of bed for the numbers." And Jeff was kind of surprised by that but they ended up finding he's like oh of course yes they found a common bond but it had it took some time to peel that back and i've just seen that time and again with leaders i've worked for there's almost a superstition sometimes that if they talk about things that are quote soft that people aren't going to deliver the performance as opposed to i've learned the opposite i think when you really listen what's what do people what matters you take care of people the performance follows
1: yeah, I, I think so. And even even that, what you were saying about the three parts of the brain, the triune brain, and how the reptilian or the and or the emotional like always wins.
0: Yeah, that was his line. The reptilian always wins, and I think about that often, especially in the kind of political climate we're in right now, and really around the world. But fear, yeah. unfortunately, fear works because yeah. the reptilian always wins. And, but the need to, to also connect on an emotional level to override that. And again, I think companies talk a good game when they talk about purpose and mission. And I know they want to do the right thing, but I think they expect it to be easy. It's an, it's a never ending process. Yeah.
1: I love the statement you make in this book toward the end, when you talk about creating a life you love, when you write, you don't just live a life, you blunder your way toward creating one you love.
0: Yeah. That's one of my favorite lines too.
1: I just wanted to say that. <laughs> okay. I wanna ask you, I want to ask you about turning Steve Jobs down. Not once, but twice. Yeah. And really, I think maybe what's under the question is actually about decision making. It is, definitely. Right? But will you talk about that a little bit? Well,
0: I was um, it was my third assignment at NBC, leading digital media, and it was a very tough job, probably the toughest job I've ever had. And I was I wasn't doing as well as I wanted to do, let's put it
1: that way. What was so hard about it?
0: Because we were in the middle of change, the arrival of, of YouTube and digital media was threatening to the traditional broadcast arena. And I had left NBC to go to G and came back. And my colleagues and I hadn't worked together. We were in the same company. We hadn't worked together for five or six years. So we had all grown and changed in ways we didn't realize about each other. So we were different people too. And so I, I there was just it was a very tense time. We were warring tribes, it's a whole other discussion. I would not recommend what we did, but I had a lot of reason to be done with that place. And I was working in digital media and came to know the Apple people. And they reached out to me and said, Hey, we have a job at iTunes. Do you want to come and talk to us about it? And I did. And they used Steve to close the deal. I remember got a cell phone call from him and hey, it's Steve Jobs. I really want you to come and take this job. I had met him in the course of the interview process, and it just wasn't the right job for me. I remember it just, you know, I I, I just felt I, I, the Apple wasn't the Apple it is now. He wasn't Steve Jobs the way he is to us now, but it just didn't seem like the right thing. So in some ways, it was kind of easy for me to say this just isn't the right job for me. I I want to be more of a programming person. I want to focus more in management, leadership at, at NBC GE. So I had a different plan. I wanted to be in content. I could not have imagined Apple would be in content. And so I said no. And then so about six months later he called me again and said, Hey, I realized that wasn't the right job. I actually have something else. Can you come out and see me? Mm-hmm. And I did. And again, it just I went I, I did I, the reason I shared it in the book was not to say hey, but just to say difficult decisions face you in, in, on a personal level. And this was very personal and professional I had a whole decision tree process that i that I went through so here's here's how it works you know like the job was interesting I wanted to do it on one level and the other I wasn't sure is was the right job for me I just had a gut feeling about it here's my decision tree one I usually drive my husband crazy asking him we have like 500 conversations especially I remember I wrote in the book I remember like financially it wasn't a lot of the salary wasn't that great, but the stock options, I remember sitting with my husband going, how good can those stock options be, really? I mean, yeah. come on. So, you know, we sat at the kitchen table, and I was nervous about moving because of my younger daughter was going, to, going into high school, and I had moved with my older daughter. So on a personal level, I did, was not looking forward to that. But I go through and, and you know, ask my husband and other people who, who I felt comfortable sharing, which weren't that many, and kind of got their... Feedback and I do a pros cons. You know what are, what happens if I stay? What if I go? What are other things I want to do? And then I say okay, I'm going to make a decision. I'm going to go to sleep on it. So I literally do my look at it one more time. Go to sleep. I wake up and I say, what's my gut feeling? And my gut was, this isn't you. Just this isn't the thing for you. Huh. Why? Because I think in the end I felt I didn't want to move with my daughter, but we could have. I just didn't feel like I would be able to have the kind of innovation work that I wanted to do that I felt I could do in a GE context there. I just, it just was a gut check. Um, and you know, financially it was not a smart move. I always regretted that I didn't in some way have a way to work with Steve Jobs to be made better, but I ultimately made the decision in all the right reasons. And so decision made, I can't regret that. Yeah. And I, I shared it because of that, because I often felt it was, I, I wanted to, I, I oh, not always, but I often, if someone approached me about a job, I would talk to people outside the company. I didn't feel disloyal. Usually I'd always come back with a renewed interest. This is one of the rare times where I was like, yeah, I, I'll go talk to them. But I also feel like you kind of owe it to yourself yeah. to know what you're worth and what, else, what other people think of you out there. So that's kind of how I how I went through the process. But ultimately I was incredibly loyal to the company and mostly it just wasn't the right thing for me. Yeah.
1: Well thank you for sharing that. And that's not surprising to me that you you know, you have these conversations and, and value, you know, because part of I think the role you've played so brilliantly is this role of an explorer, this role of discovery and going out and learning what is going on in the world, what are people up to and you know, what's happening and not just staying within the confines of the four walls of whatever headquarters is or what or the way we've always done things. And in particular, because maybe this maybe this is a great way of illustrating that, I'm intrigued about what you did when you because so if I understand right, you basically established this innovation center in Silicon Valley, where GE is this 130 year old organization based on the East Coast and and you know, even originally and still some today, American manufacturing and all this kind of thing, but now knowing the world is going a very different direction. you lead this effort to go create in the in the bay area this innovation center and this process you did with alex constantinople about creating a space map and very strategically very deliberately it's not like on even one weekend or one afternoon but for a period of maybe for years
0: yeah at least for two years
1: yeah will you will you talk us through what what that was like and what what difference it made for you and for the organization
0: well, we we knew we wanted to, having been in NBC, seeing the digital disruption, and then there were other parts of GE seeing digital. We knew digital had to be part of GE, more, the more manufacturing part of the company's future. We just didn't know what that meant. So it took a lot of discovery. And I think that became kind of the, the move of the, the team and I. What we worked on was how, how do we enter a new market? How do we learn what's going on? And so, a Silicon Valley, Alex Constantinople had been a former colleague. We worked together at NBC and at GE, and then she went out and led a company called Outcast. And I went to her and said, "How? how, how you know this market. We don't. Let's survey the landscape and then figure out, a, if you will, a battle plan for how we're gonna how we're gonna get to know people here, how we're gonna listen to what's going on, how we're gonna introduce ourselves." And so that's what we did. I mean, we we created the Literally, these big stakeholder maps of who are the various people in venture and various technology companies, academia, just, you, you know, you name it. Who are the established companies and startups? We had a couple of hypotheses. We knew we were going to be doing more in the digital, you know, digital technology. We'd already had a team started on that. But we didn't know how much we were going to be doing in venture and partnering with startups. So in the beginning, it was very much just a listening tour, just showing up and saying, hey, you know we're GE, you might think of us as this East Coast manufacturing, we're actually trying to be more digital and we need to learn from you. And I, th- I came to find that you have smart questions and people know you're sincere about the learning, they usually open up for you. And it wasn't just me doing it or the teams I worked with, and we had to have a plan for Jeff Immelt, the CEO, for the chief technology officer. For So we created a whole... Series of get to know you plans for a number of different leaders in the company, and you have to keep working it. You can't just say we've had one dinner, we're done. Yeah. Uh, and you had to put some. We had to put some money at work to it. Meaning, are there people we can partner with? Are there startups we might want to do pilot projects with? A lot of this was a, I, I would call it a discovery and learning budget, and uh, it took us a couple years to really learn and to for people to say, ah, you know, they ask good questions. They are serious about learning. They they are following up on what they said they were going to do, So that was the, that was the move.
1: Yeah, I, I just thought that was so cool. And I've only, you know in my career, I come across one other organization that I'm aware of that's been so deliberate about actually understanding a given space. and the other group is in philanthropy, but it's the same basic process to understand who are the people, what are the events, who are the pub- you know, the media and, and the publicists in this space. Where did you where did you learn this? Is it something that came to you, or did you see someone else? That Just learn by
0: doing. I, I think for me, when I took over as chief marketing officer, I, I was an unexpected pick. I mean, I came out of advertising and media, so it wasn't that unexpected. But I hadn't gone to business school. I had. I don't even think I'd taken a marketing class. But I came to appreciate this simple to me this simple truth that marketing was about living in the market it was about taking the title incredibly serious and the company was very inward focused for good reason but you know had a lot of industry but there was maybe an opportunity for other people to be see what's happening beyond the company and so those things kind of one developed and it just became the place to go because there was a need there of what's happening out there what are people saying what are the trends what are the insights and then, when, you know, you just start to develop a process uh, after a while to ask questions and figure out who are the people we should know. Yeah,
1: that's cool. And then this forward-looking practice that you have, maybe even a way of being, <laughs> just something that seems like it's a big part of who you are. I love this one thing you share in the book about drafting a press release that as though it had happened or were about to be announced. Will you talk about that and why you do it and what the benefits of doing it are?
0: Yeah, it's a, just a core tenet I have of strategy is a story well told. And again, maybe that's the storyteller in me, given my communications background. And, and I would find time and again where colleagues would say, you know, we're doing this deal or we're launching this product now, kind of like get me a story, mm-hmm. explain why. And no one could. And I came to appreciate if you can't tell your story, then how is everyone? How is anyone ever going to partner with you, buy your product, come and, come and work for you? And because I had grown up in public relations and media, it became just a quick shorthand way to say, if you can't, you know, someone would come say, we're going to announce this product, we're going to do this deal. Okay, let's write, write a press release about it. What's your headline? What's your subhead? Give me some quotes. Tell me why. And if it's a lot of gobbledygook, and speak that no one you know, no one knows, it's pretty clear you don't have a strategy. So I just found that was a really easy way built on some expertise that I had developed over the years to just work with something I knew to get to the essence of, mm, you don't have a strategy, sorry, there's nothing here.
1: Yeah, I, I thought that was really cool.
0: We used to do that with the, our teams, and these were not communications folks, where you, somebody would have an idea, and you'd say, like, we love that idea. Can you, but maybe we're just too close to it. Can you go away tonight and write it as a press release? And when we get back together. Let's all look at it, and reflect, and see: Is there one? You'll tell us if there's a there there because you'll come back and go, ah, there's nothing. I really couldn't do anything. But it was also sometimes very official. And to go to somebody and say, "Hey, here's this new idea we're going to launch, and here here's a press release for when we announce it." made it real.
1: Yeah, that's one thing I love about the creative process: is seeing this progression of thought to speaking often, very often, to writing than to sharing and that things become real the more they're shared. Yeah.
0: I I love that you say that, Brian. It's exactly right. I think that was one of my big learnings. The more you share it, and often idea people especially, they don't want to share the idea because they're afraid someone's going to take it, it's not ready, and you start to realize, oh my gosh, the sooner you share it, the more people make it their own and it's no longer yours, which is probably a good thing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And one of the things I've discovered, I think people, I don't know if this is the mirror of neurons or... Our inherent nature but I think we are wired for connection and to to share and help one another and when when somebody is and some things resonate more than others but very often I know I've had the experience where somebody's shared something with me that they've been very enthusiastic about and my default response is, how can I help
0: yeah exactly <laughs> you know? yeah I, I think that's that's a, a good learning when you realize that actually the more you ask for help the more you get it yeah and it's for me that was a painful lesson because Perfectionist, also somewhat shy and introverted. Asking for help was very painful, and and I think as a perfectionist, you're like, well, if I ask for help, they're going to think I'm not very good. We all, many of us, go through that process, but you realize, like, Brian, will you help me? Like, usually, you're flattered, you're yeah. honored. I want, I see your earnestness. I want to help you do that.
1: Yeah, well, and and I love that you brought up this thing about introversion because I wanted to ask about that. You talk early in the book about social courage. And you talk about it being something that we can develop. Number one, is that true? And two, if so, how?
0: Yeah. To me, social courage is just this ability to connect and engage with other people. And if you're introverted, like I am in my nature, I would just as soon go home and sit in my room and read a book as (laughs) as I would to go and, you know, I'm not, I'm not a, I I, traditionally wasn't a good networker. I'm not good at small talk and so to me social courage was this first an awakening that because that wasn't my nature i was holding myself back i share a couple of stories but there was one in particular i worked at cnn and i was head of communications in new york and ted turner was the head of turner at the time and i remember standing there at the un he was getting an award i'd worked with him for a year and i I knew he didn't know my name because i didn't say two words i remember standing there thinking I am holding myself back. I cannot be this way. And I walk, I was like, I'm going to go up, I'm going to reintroduce myself. And of course I pick the most awkward moments (laughs) coming out of the men's room. And I'm like, hi, Ted, I'm, and he looks at me like, I'm sure like, what's wrong with you? You work for me, what are you doing? And he's like, looking like, what do you want? I lost my nerve and he walked away. He never knew my – I'm not sure if he ever knew my name. (laughs) But at the other sense, I was quite proud of myself because I actually had walked up to him and reintroduced myself. And that became this sort of quintessential social courage example. No matter how awkward, okay, he looked at me like I was an idiot. He walked away, but I did it. And so that became my little – they do these little micro challenges. Okay, here's a networking event or a, a cocktail thing at work hate these things. And what I want to do is go home. And often I would go to the chip ball and then leave. Would, no. Okay, you're going to go and you're going to meet one person. Oh, look, there's that guy over there. Uh, hi. And he finds out it's you, Brian. I'd say hi and try to ask, have a decent conversation. And then I could leave. Next time I'm going to meet two people and three people. It would work similarly if I was going into a meeting and had an idea but was afraid to pitch it. And I would hate when someone else would have an idea that I would think, ah, oh, I had that or I had something better and I didn't say anything. Yeah. You're going to go in, you're going to pitch one idea. You're going to ask one question. It was that kind of just small steps of little courage that to anyone else would seem silly. Really? You're afraid to ask a question? Yeah, I was.
1: Uh, that's amazing. And I love the way that you describe that about micro challenges yeah. that you created for yourself. And And one of the things that I love hearing about that, and I suspect people listening who are maybe feeling that same way that they wouldn't even talk to their boss or they feel maybe intimidated or reluctant to connect with people in a social setting or elsewhere. I find that really remarkable that that was you years ago because of what you say in the book about your career-long habit of inviting yourself to meetings.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> Will you talk about why you did that and what it was like?
0: Well, I think the, the one of the keys for me of that social courage was one to get out of my head, so it's a bit of psychology. Get out of my head because what the dialogue that goes on in those awkward moments where you're lacking the social courage is, you know, I I'm saying talking to you, Brian, but in meanwhile I'm like, oh, Brian's sitting there going, like, why is she wearing that dress today? She looks dumb. I can't believe she just said that. Meanwhile, you're not saying that at all. You're not right. thinking that at all. Or if you no, are, I think wearing,
1: it's a lovely dress. Right,
0: but I don't. <laughs> yeah. At that moment, I'm in my head, so I had to get out of my head. B, no. it's not about me, Brian. Tell me about you. Uh, not just what do you do, but, you know, what's a good book you've read? Tell me something, what's a trend you're looking at? And so I had to use curiosity. And so I came to, the curiosity became kind of my, it was, it is my thing. It's my strength. And so that's what got me out of that. And so inviting myself to meetings where I wasn't invited Partly that's just also showing up a little bit as the agitator in in an organization of trying to bring some change. But often it was, hey, I'm curious. I want to learn. I think I can contribute something. So I'm just going to show up here and have a point of view. So obviously it's a long journey from not being able to reintroduce yourself to your boss to showing up to a meeting where you haven't been invited. But it's a series of those steps. And curiosity, I think, is the thread there.
1: Yeah. I, I thought that was really cool. I suspect that was awkward on more than one occasion. <laughs>
0: yeah, definitely. Well, there were a couple of times I showed up for meetings that I didn't have any business being in. I you know, so you you, you know, oh sorry wrong wrong meeting and obviously <laughs> you're not going to show up in a board meeting where you're not invited and things like that, but Hartley was I'm curious, I think I can help. I have a point of view on this and that's a confidence that you build over time.
1: Yeah. And in your career you took a lot of risks, it seems to me. I don't know if they occurred for you at the time as risks, but doing a lot of things that. And it was fun for me to read the book because there were things that I was aware of. I mean, I think we're all aware of things like Lazy Sunday or Hulu, you know, or Echo Imagination or these things that you were close to or a leader of. And I wonder how you successfully not only survived, but the way I understand it, is thrived in this culture that was probably not very friendly. You know I think about the story you told about going to the to the leadership or the management conference where there were so many men yeah. that they turned the women's rooms into men's rooms. Right. You know how did you if they were risks how did you take so, how did you manage to take so many risks and how did you end up again not only surviving but thriving in this environment that probably I mean corporate America I think can be a really challenging place.
0: it, it can be and I think it's partly because we just imagine well. This is just the way things are. And I, that, those early days when I first showed up at the G leadership meetings in the the men's room, the women's rooms were turned into the women's rooms were turned into men's rooms. I was so happy that changed over time. I mean, that was a really good sign of uh, of culture change. Had that not changed, I'm not sure I would have stayed there. So the culture had to change. But that I think partly for me it was just this this sense of just believing in the the, the trends and the change. It was. Using that curiosity, it wasn't about my idea. It wasn't about you better believe. I mean, sometimes I did that and that well, I'm not proud of that. We're like, you better believe my idea. But generally when it worked, it was because I and the teams I worked with, we hung out in places where outside the company and we got to see trends and we got to... Have a real passionate view of this is where the world's going, and we believe in a better way, and this might be an idea. So it wasn't about our idea; it was about, hey, this is happening, and let's translate it. And so that became a different way to show up. And it, it, it not to say it wasn't scary, and the like, risk taking risks and those things were they were definitely scary. But it was getting outside our head and saying this is happening. I mean, clean technology is really happening. It's if we're not part of this, we're gonna be left behind. We gotta do something. So it's those kind of things that I think give you the courage that I just
1: on my own didn't have. You know, speaking of that, about you know, going out and finding out what's happening, one of the things I love in your book, and I've actually shared this with, with some people as I read it, was the story about the bracket on the 727. I thought that was so incredible. This bracket that weighed four and a half pounds. If it could be lightened, it could save millions in fuel, for, you know, different expenses and, and fuel and this kind of thing. But the engineers were very smart people, very experienced, saying, we've tried it. That's the lightest we can get it. And then you managed to find a way to encourage the the organization to find a way. Will you, will you share a little bit about that?
0: We were just getting into new methods of manufacturing. We were very learning and discovering a lot about 3D printing. And that was the, I mean, some of the smartest people I've ever known worked at GE and the engineer or engineers and aviation, not only really the smartest, but the most innovative, I would say. But they were like, hey, we've tried. We've tried to get rid of this part. And frankly, we've given up. We've tried everything possible. So on one hand, they were like, if you think you can do this better, go for it, because we've tried. And just we had come to appreciate open innovation and the idea of putting out a grand challenge to Someone else in the world who might have a better way and saying, can you do this? And we did. We said, hello, world. Can you look at this, this part that you know our company called a dumb old part, not just because we had tried everything. Can you make it better? And we got thousands of ideas. And the winning idea came from a, like, a 19-year-old science student in Indonesia. And he just d- designed a better way of thinking about it. Now, yeah, had to do a lot of testing on it. And do a few of those, and people start to go, "Oh, okay, I see. I see there is a different way." And and the good curious people, are like, I want to learn more. Yeah. Can I work with this guy? Can he come an intern here? How do we think about that? And so I often found that was a good filter for the curious tribe, for the people who wanted to learn more, and and then they could make it their own. And yeah. so that, and usually we would pick something that wasn't high stakes, mm-hmm. but would be meaningful enough that if it happened, people it would get people's attention. And so it was often, there was a little tense in the beginning, trying to find something that would get people's attention, but not too much attention. And so you also have to pick your projects while well on those too. Yeah.
1: And that one, I loved, I mean, for so many reasons about the, the whatever the veterans saying, you know, it's almost close the patent office. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, we've, we've done it. And then when you open it up and for something that can save the operators and, millions of dollars but you paid seven thousand dollars which is all probably all the money to the world in this student in indonesia exactly and and he doesn't just make an incremental improvement. I mean, this is an 84% reduction. Yeah, he, he took it. He, he
0: fundamentally, re, he was basically a, had a different way to use space and, so cool. and took 80 plus percent out. Now, obviously, there was a lot of testing and he was a, it was a, it was an idea that needed to be proven. So there was a lot of role then from GE expertise to come to bear. Yeah. But it was that spark. Yeah. And sometimes I think that this is what worries me a lot of, of, of what I've learned in innovation in traditional organizations, really anybody who's been successful, mm. you're less likely to consider a new way of doing it. Yeah. And it's at those moments when often you need the spark of the challenge to say, well, wait a minute, why are you so convinced that this time is the same? And that, those moments I found really helpful.
1: Yeah, that definitely seems to be a pattern for virtually any industry or science I mean, it makes me think of that saying, Max Planck. I've heard it should be to Max Planck, and I'll probably get it wrong, but when he talks about science advances one funeral at a time, mm. you know. And, and when I read Isaacson's biography of Einstein and read about how Einstein basically spent the first half of his career kind of just attempting to disprove all the established theories and does, and then he spends the last half of his lifetime trying to defend his right. own. Right. And how no matter how smart we are, we, our, sometimes our intelligence is used in service of defending something that – You know, by all by all rights ought to probably be questioned.
0: Most of us are that way. I mean it's just like you say, it's human nature. You especially the more expertise you have. Increasingly in our organizations we, we value the expertise. We we tend to not think as much of the generalists, the people who can go from place to place and have maybe different kinds of expertise. And so it's a good reminder often at least to have that as part of your process. It's not to say that they're always going to unlock the idea, but to just say, why not? Yeah. Why now? Why is it different? Okay, that didn't work for you when you tried it 10 years ago, but why might now be different?
1: Yeah. I love that when you say in, in the keynote you delivered to our organization today about not. You've discovered, I'm sorry, that no doesn't always mean no. In fact, yeah. what, what do you say? I,
0: I say no is not yet. I hear it as an invitation. Yeah. Oh, you say no. I think you mean not yet. Because, and that again takes a certain amount of naivete, to be honest, a certain amount of ability to just kind of put all those fears aside. When somebody tells you no, the example I use is you know, we were pitching a store concept at NBC, and the, the head of the network's like, no. And, you know, okay, he said no, I guess we can't do it. But it was like, no, we believed in this. So we've got to find another way to come back. And for me, I used to believe I had to at least try three times. There was one project I remember working on trying six years. We finally got that. I finally, it was frankly not because of me. It was because we finally, by, after that, we finally found somebody really great to, who knew what she was doing to lead it. But that would be one of the things I also learned about that. There's a tenacity I think I'm talking about. But I also came to appreciate that sometimes I wasn't the best one to keep pushing forward. That maybe I I had worn out my welcome, and that you needed a fresh perspective. And so you're not giving up on the vision. You're just trying different tactics. And so maybe I'm not the best messenger. We still believe in it. Yep. Okay, Brian, you're gonna. T- you, do you like yeah. this? Okay. Why don't you own this now? I got to step back. <laughs> yeah. And that's sometimes hard to do too.
1: Yeah. I think I think Edison. I mean, this. So first of all, I didn't know that GE was founded by Edison. Yeah. That was one thing I learned from your book that I'm glad to know. I think Edison would have been proud to know that you were in his organization. It's, I mean, that's, that sounds like his M.O. right there.
0: I hope so. I mean, if Edison's what we all believe, if we learned in school, right? Yeah. I mean, hopefully he did create some amazing things. Hopefully he was as good a guy as we think he was. Yeah,
1: we all have warts, Yeah, Yeah, sure. Yeah. For sure. But
0: I, I think one of the things about Edison that I love learning about him is that he was a great marketer. He wasn't yeah. just a great inventor. I mean, um, one of the stories I love is when he had to, quote, sell the, the vision of electricity. And he created this parade in downtown Manhattan where he, I think, had 400 men with light bulbs on their head and these electric wires down the back of their shirt, and somebody was cranking the electricity. And he was showing people that this electricity is so safe, these people are walking around with it on their heads. And it wasn't about, here are the features of the technology. It was about selling in this yeah. case, a parade. Yeah, Literally, show, showing, a parade. Yeah. Showing people. Right. He had to show. He yeah. had, to, had to show yeah. uh, and, and to tell in order to sell it. And so I, I think that often is lost on some of the inventors of the world uh, and the innovators, is that they're also really great storytellers and, and yeah. marketers.
1: Yeah, for sure. And as we know, the ideas we advance aren't always, maybe not often, received warmly by others. One of the things you talk about, you devote an entire section in your book to this this idea of agitated inquiry and dealing with conflict. And I love this, what you say about, I might be getting ahead of myself. Will you please share, what do you mean when you say agitated inquiry?
0: Well, I, I, I mean basically you're beating up your ideas to see if they're sturdy enough to go the test of time. So you're intentionally beating things up. You're intentionally asking tough questions. You're intentionally seeding some conflict and tension to get to a better place. So it's kind of a fancy phrase to just say, I got to beat some stuff up to make sure this is going to last. And so from what I had to learn and the teams I worked with, we had to learn to ask different kinds of questions. We had to learn to invite people in who didn't like the ideas often, those critics. You know, there's nothing better than getting a group of people. I mean, I would find there's nothing better than a group of marketers sitting around a table. We'll tell ourselves we're geniuses bring someone else in who has a different perspective, it may have the same passion but has a different way of doing it, we're going to get a much better place. But that's hard because it means people are different, they look at it differently, they want to take a different path, and you got to work through that. So that's what you have to do in innovation is you have to find a way to use that tension and seed it to get to better ideas, to get to better view of, of, of the future.
1: Yeah, and creating an environment where people will do that instead of just do the polite thing. Oh, no, it's, the idea is fine. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And you talk about this, about you say you have to surface conflict continuously before tensions mount too high and that tension is the price of admission when you're innovating. Yeah. I thought that was really interesting. So what I'm curious to know is, say that you do, I know people, I, I, I sometimes think Gary Chapman in his book, The Five Love Languages, Might have forgotten the sixth love language because I actually have this working theory that for some people conflict is a love language. It's their attempt to create closeness. You know? Yeah.
0: No, I think you're right. Yeah,
1: and so there's there's some people that will just they relish that already. There's others that are way on the other side of the spectrum. They run from the first sign of conflict. What have you found has been successful once if if somebody is willing to take this on of surfacing conflict, trying to stay in that space, not in not in a maybe an antagonistic way, but in a way of looking for the best way. What do you find works when it comes to then successfully navigating or resolving the conflict after it's been identified or surfaced?
0: Well, one, you have to be open to conflict. You have to ask people, you know, tell me a different perspective, tell me why this won't work. I think there are uniting questions that bring, first of all, like, do we are are we agreed on what problem we're trying to solve? Yeah. Oftentimes your conflict is because you're both, you have very different ideas of what you're trying to accomplish. So you spend all your time in things that are not relevant to what you're trying to do. So there's a core set of questions. I mean, what's your hypothesis was something I came to really appreciate. So I think you're trying to one, make sure do you have a shared vision about what you're trying to do? So I think that's really a key thing in terms of asking the questions. What else? so knowing how to ask good questions. The second thing is, I think giving space for people to kind of go away and think about ideas, come back together, having a session, and maybe it's different kinds of people. I remember with one of the teams I worked with, I, I would probably skew on the optimist side, and sometimes I found a special conflict with the people who were more the pessimists. But we needed them, yeah. And if left to my own devices. I'd get them out of the room because they were always the negative nellies and ugh, not here comes Dr. No again. Yeah. But sometimes you need that perspective. And so knowing when to use that perspective, if we're also excited, now's the time to bring in a Dr. No.
1: Yeah. I think that's a really advanced perspective, maybe even an enlightened perspective. And someone once suggested to me, if you have, you know, if you have multiple people involved in an endeavor and they all agree. Some of them aren't necessary. (laughs) Yeah,
0: exactly. (laughs) Exactly. And I think by that, it's also what teams do, how do you form your team? Are you consciously trying to bring in different perspectives, different experience, different skill sets, introverts, extroverts, analytical, creative? Are you cultivating those teams? It's hard work. Yeah. And many times we don't, we just expect everybody to agree. We like the idea, ready, set, go.
1: Yeah.
0: But you got to beat it up before you go, and often I found that was the challenge. We tried to get to action before we actually worked through some of those essential strategy and alignment questions. Yeah. The other thing I guess I'd say is just, are you setting up a team culture where people are will are able to what you said earlier, bring in those things that say like this idea doesn't work, this is bad news. We had a phrase for success theater, and we had to work really hard to eradicate that propensity in companies, especially successful companies, to just say, oh, no, everything's good, or you're afraid to tell the boss that it doesn't work. You don't want to be the bearer of bad news. You have to create a space where, okay, let's go through everything that's bad about this. Let's go through everything that could go wrong. You have to create that space for that and and create the reality, sort of the reality test of it.
1: I think that's not intuitive.
0: No, it's so. not, and it's not easy, Yeah, especially as a team leader. You want everybody to get along. Yeah. And so, and to say, oh, I got to bring in the, you know, negative now, but then maybe the way to flip it is this is a job for negative now, because we are going to sink. If we convince our, if we're so overly convinced this is going to work, we need somebody to bring us down a little bit. So you have to make that part of your process. Yeah. And I think maybe through enough failure, you start to go, Hey, I got to bring somebody else in because we didn't do it well the last time.
1: Yeah. I like that. Okay. So. Before we transition to the enlightening, lightning ground, I have, I have a question about coaching and then I'm going to say the question about giving yourself permission to the writing, because okay. I think that's probably really relevant for anyone involved in a creative endeavor, which I, okay. So in the book, you talk about the value of coaching. Oh, I, I want to say this too, before we leave the conflict thing, because I thought this was really brilliant about when you give, I forget what you call those little like the call-outs. Where it's set off from the main text. It's the little black boxes. Yeah. I don't I, know if you have a name for them. I'm <laughs> not sure I have
0: a name for them. Yeah.
1: But in there you give some challenges. I, I call some, them some, challenges. Some challenges, yeah. yeah. And in this, one of the one of those challenges you you give that I I found that I do and I love, and I want to just put it in here in case it's useful to readers or listeners if they haven't done this already, was you say, Give the conflict a name. Mm. Something funny or memorable to cut the tension. And I wondered if you might have an example of a time that you've done that you'd be willing to share.
0: Well, I can often think <laughs> of a time I didn't do that and that's what would have solved it. I talked earlier about when I was at NBC and a tough, a tough assignment. Part of why it was so tough is we became warring tribes. It was the digital cool kids against the broadcasts tried and true. And we lost sight of the mission and we lost sight of what we were trying to do. And We never brought humor. We didn't bring humanity. I mean, my colleague that we were fighting, I mean, I knew this guy from before. I knew he was a great father. I knew, you know, but we lost sight of our humanity. And I often think, like, we could have just come up with stupid names for it. We could have just called it something that we laughed about. To just find these (coughs) moments to reunite us of what we're trying to do here. But before you know it, it, the conflict is internal, and it's, I'm going to show you... I'm going to show you whose idea is better. I'm going to show you who gets more kudos in the company, and it's it's it doesn't work. Yeah, then it, it so
1: becomes so can position. you
0: diffuse it exactly? Yeah. Sorry, bro.
1: No, I was, I was just going to say I've seen that. You know, I've been guilty of this. You know, like a position taking a position, yeah. and getting locked into it, and and I've seen this. I, I saw this in Dr. John Gottman's books, who's the relationship and marriage right. counselor, and and it might not be exactly the same, but it, it resonated with me where he talks about repair attempts. And this idea of using humor after we've had conflict to mitigate it and to signal to the other party, like, hey, I'm willing to make amends and to let this go. And I saw that my wife and I actually do that in our, in our relationship where this is probably TMI, <laughs> you know, for anybody, but we have this thing where we call our kids, we've named each of our kids a potato. So we've got the sweet potato oh, and the cute. tater tot, and then we're Mr. <laughs> and Mrs. Potato. And so sometimes after we've had an upset or a misunderstanding or something, one of us will say potato. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's just that's see. like your
0: code word. Yeah. yeah. And then
1: if it's safe, if the other one's willing really to, to make yeah. amends, then, then they'll call back. And if not, it's like, okay, just keep giving her space or whatever. So I, I, I love that. I love that. That's
0: I'm going to take that away. I mean, yeah. potato. Maybe yeah. just, you know, it's, but yeah, and we forget that at work. We forget that we're people yeah. and just a, a little bit of diffused, or we try to use humor in a very passive aggressive way. That's right. In, in that particular case, when I was at NBC, the culture wasn't always so good at that. And <clears> people would agree. Oh yeah. I, yeah, Brian, I'm going to do that. And then they'd leave the room and be like, I am never doing that thing Brian just said. I'm never backing it. So there's also a flaw. I mean, you can't really have humor no. when people are not being sincere and honest. So you have to create that. Back to what I said earlier, that space of we're gonna we're gonna have it out, then a decisions made, and then everybody f- falls in line, and we get some new information. But if that doesn't happen, humor isn't going to really work yeah. either.
1: Yeah, for, for sure. And and what you said about that passive aggressive humor or the sarcastic or biting humor, you know that. Humor is an interesting thing because it can be very destructive, you know, if it's not used with, I might call it, love or compassion yeah. or understanding. But I'm you glad
0: you raised that. I, I would say I, I actually I've already put too many pages in the book, but if I there are things I would have put more of. I think it would have even been some of those things. I Those regretful ways I had of people, the things I said, and it was that often. That's what I regret the most. Like the biting humor that I was. Who was I kidding? I was being a sarcastic person. I was not being genuine and he, 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 it's cheap. Yeah. And I still regret some of those. I still remember some of those. So yeah, people people see through that too.
1: Yeah, someone once told me I don't I haven't researched this myself but they said that the etymology the root of the word sarcasm is to tear down. Hmm. I was like that's interesting and probably probably true. Probably true. But the thing about, you know, we all I'm not trying to be your therapist or console you, but, you know, I have this theory. We're all doing the best we can yeah. with the knowledge and perspective we have at any given moment. So, although...
0: You, you do, but there are times <clears throat> when, especially in corporate settings, company settings, team settings, right? I mean, we're people, when maybe you're tired... Again, it's like, I'll show you. Usually for me, it was that I'll show you. That was where it started. I mean, there was a motivator in that. I'll show you is a good motivator. But then it becomes like, I'm going to show you I'm more right than you. Then it's about tearing you down. So the humor is not funny.
1: Yeah, for sure. Okay, so the last question I have in this section is about coaching. I love coaching. I think it's a really beautiful, beautiful practice. And that's why I've devoted my life to to it, to, to practicing it it, teaching others about it. Well, I can it. tell
0: in our conversation, I have a really nice style about, about you. So maybe that was one of the reasons you've been drawn to it.
1: Um, yeah. And you say, you talk about how valuable it can be to work with a coach on page 57 in the book, but you, what I, what I'm curious to know specifically is in your view, what are the qualities of an effective coach?
0: Yeah.
1: And you could also answer this, what makes someone an ineffective coach?
0: I've always had coaches, whether they were friends or professional coaches. For me, I think it was about just wanting to be better, Uh, that that belief. And I'm a big person in personal development. So I think you have to be open to knowing you can be better and you want to be better. So I think a good coach understands your sincerity. They're gentle with you when they need to be, but tough when they need to be. They don't put up with your, you know, your... Close-mindedness. So you know, like I can never do that. Well, did you try? No. Well, I'm not, I mean, how many times are you can have that conversation with a coach? So I think the best coaches are the ones that have taken time to get to know me, to know what motivates me, to understand me holistically. The worst ones, I think, are the ones that honestly, they maybe it's about them. They they they're they're trying to. It's less about you, what your needs are, more about trying to prove their method's gonna work. Yeah. If you just do my five step method, it's going to work. And they don't take the time to really understand what's important to you and how help work with you how to take their expertise and, and amend it to your, your
1: your situation. Thank you. The other thing we talked about, story earlier, I loved to what is it, Steve? Is it Schmidt? Is his name? <laughs> Steve Schmidt.
0: From the McCain campaign.
1: I love what what you write when you say the ability to harness story is what differentiates a good leader from a great one. And then I love what he said. Pick a simple story and tell it again and again and again.
0: It is so hard because we can't. And I would say the leaders I've struggled with and when I've struggled in myself, it's been because I'm too close to the story. I feel like it can't be that simple. Yeah, it can be. It must be. It must be, and I think even you look. Steve came out of politics, but I think we, we all are sort of you know politics is is a part of American life these days. And usually the ones that do the best have a simple story. Yeah,
1: no question. Okay, so I propose that we transition to the enlightening lightning round. Okay, there with that. Great. Okay, so again in this section, these are relatively brief questions. You're welcome to answer as long as you want. My aim. Is for the most part to answer the question and just kind of stand aside okay okay question one please complete the following sentence with something other than a box of chocolates life is like a
0: life is like a roller coaster
1: okay number two this is peter teal's question what important truth do very few people agree with you on
0: that i'm an introvert
1: okay number three if you were required every day for the rest of your life to wear a t-shirt with a slogan on it or a phrase or a saying or a quote or a quip, what would the shirt say?
0: I actually have this t-shirt. It says, "Frickin' (laughs) impatient.
1: And does it use the word frickin? Yes. Does, okay. <laughs> Where did you get this?
0: Um, because I was quoted once saying, you know, what's something you're working on about yourself? <clears throat> and I just said, I'm impatient. I'm frickin' impatient. And this lovely woman had a t-shirt company and she sent me this. It's like one of my prized possessions. She sent me the t-shirt in silver letters. So I, I have it. That's
1: that's pretty thoughtful.
0: That's fun. And I still am that. <laughs>
1: okay number four what book other than your own have you gifted or recommended most often
0: i have two but one is twyla tharp's the creative habit in fact it, it was a good model for me and some of the challenges we were talking about i what, i always loved her approach to creativity and the fact that uh, as a choreographer if you don't know who twyla tharp is she's a famous choreographer and she wrote a book about her habit of creativity and she was very organized and I came to appreciate that without organization, you know, without with creativity unbound without organization is chaos. And that really helped me. My other book that I love to give to people is Phil Knight's Shoe Dog. I, it's just such a great story
1: of leadership. Yeah. yeah. I do want, just want to explore this about creativity for just a moment here because I understand that you travel with, is it, I don't know if it's index cards and markers some the colored markers. I do. But will you talk about that? Why do you do that? How do you use them?
0: Right. I, um, when, my, when I worked in an office, I kept them also in a, in, on my desk and in a conference room blank paper and colored markers. And I just like to take notes and doodle while I'm hearing people talk. It's a way to uh, sort of bring to life, it's my way of interpreting what I'm hearing, and it kind of focuses the, the, my thoughts. So I like to, I, I do that everywhere I go. I just I just take notes and use different colored markers. Uh, and I really like it at a whiteboard and sharing it with another colleague where we each, you know, I called it whiteboard zen, where we're each, you know, ripping pens out of each other's hands and marking all over and sort of this very collaborative, interactive version of that. I love setting, sitting back and going, ah, oh, that's just like a map of our discussion of our brains. It's, it really is a brain map, I think is how I describe it.
1: That's cool. Okay, next question, number five. So you travel a ton. A ton. What is one travel hack, meaning something you do or something you take with you in your travel to make your travel less painful or more enjoyable?
0: I love being 36,000 feet in the air and just using the time to be creative, to, to think, to write, to dream. So I really enjoy that part of travel. Hmm. There's something about having my head in the clouds. I think.
1: Yeah, I know many people who've written many books on airplanes, and I can see how that could be a space of productivity if you were ready. Like if you were. If you're prepared,
0: yeah, you have to. You have to kind of get in the zone. But there is that point, especially if you're looking out the window and the person isn't like leaning their seat back too much into your space, where just like ah, oh, I can really think expansively. Yeah.
1: Anything you like to do in preparation? Is there any certain, I know some people will request certain floors in the hotels or booking or, you know, they have exercise routines or anything. you have anything like that before the travel or after you land?
0: Well, I do try to get outside and walk whenever I get to a new city, a new location just to explore. And my other thing is, I, my family will tell you, I get to the airport so early. I there's, there's no such thing as too early at the airport. I like to be ready. I like to see my gate. I, um, so I'm a bit neurotic about being there early.
1: <sighs> okay. Probably don't miss many flights. I,
0: I, I don't. It's it's a rare time I've missed a flight.
1: Yeah. That, that, I think, is one of the worst feelings in the world is missing a flight. I
0: know. Okay. Coming here, I almost I had a connection. And I was just like, I'm never doing this again. Usually, I <laughs> plan ahead.
1: <laughs> yeah. Okay. Question number six. What's one thing you've started or stopped doing in order to live or age well? Definitely changed my diet. So I have, I've changed a
0: lot of how I eat. I I don't have gluten. I don't have dairy. I've done a lot of recalibrating cut back on sugar. So that's been very important for me. I would like you to believe that I have done a lot to manage my stress and I'm better than I used to be, but I still have a lot of work to do there.
1: What have you seen has been the difference for you as you've eliminated gluten and dairy?
0: Just a lot better energy, a lot clearer mind. It's been very helpful to me. I also have a sensitivity, so I, I think that's, that's something that has made me clearer, a much clearer thinker.
1: I hear, I hear that. I know people who've done the same and uh, won't go too far down this thread, but I, I understand the inflammation that right. comes from it, the disease and stuff. People basically just say, I feel better.
0: Yeah, yeah, I do. I, and I, uh, I'd i say the other thing is maybe just really valuing sleep in a way that I used to think I was superhuman and that pride myself in the fewer hours of sleep I could get by on. That is so
1: foolish. Okay, number seven. What's one thing you wish every American knew?
0: Is that America's amazing. The American ideal, the, the idea of America is just an amazing vision, and let's not give up on it.
1: Yeah. How do you see that vision?
0: To me, it's a, it's a vision about just always being better. I identify with that. I I, I think that's why I ha- liked A Path of Innovation so much, and I often said, is it because I'm American that I feel more that way? But I believe in better, and I think America, the American vision and ideal is that we are all on a path to be better, better versions of ourselves, better citizens, better country. I think when we lose sight, we don't all have to have the exact same version of what we think America is, but we all want to be better. And when we lose sight of it's better together, things don't work as well.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. My dad would have loved that view too. He talked a lot about how beautiful the idea of America is and America is. And uh,
0: and how did he see that?
1: How huh? He would talk about the relationship between freedom and free enterprise, mm-hmm. and he would talk about the fact that America might not be perfect, but in his view, it beat the heck out of whatever was second best, you know. And the freedoms, the freedoms that we have here, that are so easy to take for granted, you know, something like free speech. I mean, it's amazing to me that people will be jailed or tortured or even killed for criticizing someone in power. I know. And here, you can, I mean like somebody would literally come find you in your home, and because you tweeted something, it's to me that's scary. If you really connect with. seems like such an essential freedom that every everybody with a smartphone you know can engage in and that's only one of dozens and dozens yeah
0: that's Uh, such a good way to put it thank you um,
1: okay what's number eight what's the most important or useful relationship advice you've ever heard and successfully applied
0: i think it's to ask for help and i would say i got that advice i learned that advice painfully as somebody who's married and the mother of two daughters i think Back to, I could have asked my husband for more help. I could have asked for more help raising my daughters. I definitely know I could have asked for more help in the course of my career, as opposed to trying to think uh, I had to do everything myself. So asking for
1: help. That's what Marshall Goldsmith says. And now that he's near, you know, seven years old, is one of his biggest learnings. It's okay to ask for help.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's so what you were saying earlier. I mean, your, your people are honored. To, if, they, if they think you're, you're sincere, they're honored to help you.
1: Yeah, for sure. And then what's that the last thing maybe I'll miss is I forget who said it, but I just reread it. Like if you would win a friend, have him do you a favor. It's like that's an interesting view.
0: Yeah, that is an interesting that is an interesting view, and it's often the opposite. Oh, I just can't ask. Yeah. I can't ask for you know, I don't wanna I don't wanna impose.
1: Yeah, often not imposing at all. Okay, and number nine, aside from compound interest, what's the most important thing you've ever learned about money? Or what's something you're sure to always or never do with it?
0: Oh boy, that's a tough question. I think to me that maybe that what I've learned is that money's not the end. I mean, it's such a, sounds like such a true, uh, you know, a, a cliche, but I do believe that. Money's not the end. Money's means, means a, a way to get there. So I think that's the most important thing
1: I've, I've learned. That, that again was something my dad would say. I loved his view when he said, his view was money is nothing but numbers on paper and a tool for doing good. So That's a cool view.
0: Yeah, that is. A, I love that tool for doing good. I think that when you start to appreciate that, that it just things open up in a way. I mean, I find the saddest people I've known are the ones who just counted their money. Yeah.
1: Okay, question number 10. I'll ask this here to make sure we, we can get it in. If people want to learn more from you or they want to connect with you, what would you have them do?
0: I would say um, I'm on most social media. LinkedIn is probably the best place to do that where there's more connection. I have been taking a bit of time off of late just to kind of clear my perspective. That would probably be the best way. You know, I I always am open for thoughtful questions that people want to pose or share. If people have perspectives they'd like to share and ask me my, my perspective, I'm always open for that.
1: And on LinkedIn, it's Beth Comstock. Mm-hmm. Just Beth Comstock, yeah. And then also people can visit BethComstock.info.
0: Yeah, it's BethComstock.info, yeah. Okay. And that's a, a, a site around my book, but there's an email address in there as well. It may take me a while to get back on email, but uh, some I eventually do.
1: Great. Okay, and then... Can the other you- would be
0: Twitter. I, I'm on Twitter quite a bit, too. It's at BethComstock.
1: How many times have you tweeted during the course of this interview? No,
0: None. None <laughs> I'm happy to say.
1: <laughs> okay. So one thing that i've done as an expression of gratitude to you for making time to talk with me and share your insights and lessons with everyone listening is i've gone on kiva.org and i've made a microloan on your behalf oh
0: my goodness thank you that's uh, so great
1: yeah uh, to a, to an entrepreneur in kenya named regina uh, who will use this money to buy farm inputs such as fertilizer to boost the quality of her crop production earn more money and improve
0: the quality oh what an honor thank you how great for for you to do that i am a Part-time novice farmer, so I can appreciate how hard that work is. Yeah,
1: I can't imagine having that be my sole source of financial support.
0: Yeah, it's hard work.
1: Yeah. So okay. So congratulations, you've survived the enlightening lightning round.
0: Thank you. <laughs> that was that was fun.
1: Yeah, and really, the last part of this interview here is around the. It's kind of a few different things: creativity, writing. Maybe some marketing and promotion where, I know many people who want to write, they often think completing the manuscript or getting it published is the finish line. And, you know, then I, what I realize is, I think many people realize when they get there, is that if the world doesn't know about it, if nobody reads it, they probably won't be satisfied. And the fact that you've done both of those, you've finished a really great book, you've gotten it out in the world. Let's start with this thing about permission. Uh, I understand that you almost named your book Permission Granted. Mm-hmm. Will you talk about that, and then why is why is it so important to give ourselves permission, and how can we do it?
0: Well, back to your one of your earlier questions: Why, who was I writing this for, and why? I mean, it was this these people in the middle of their career who often feel they aren't empowered. And I had to remember back to that time in, in my career when I had to just give myself permission. It was this literally this idea of write myself a permission slip. I, Beth Comstock, give myself permission to go ask a question in this meeting. And I would see this time and again. I taught a a management class at GE, and I would see it every month with the the young managers I would interact with. I loved that session. But they would often say, oh, you don't know my boss. She'll never go for this. We don't have enough funding. The board won't go for it. You know, all these ideas could have been absolutely valid, but you'd peel it back and go, did you talk to your boss? Oh, no, I, I can't ask him. Well, why and what you'd realize is people were really afraid and i re- resonate with that the, the fear mm. and so that was at the kind of the heart of the philosophy of what i felt was challenged a lot in established companies and challenged in all of us is we're looking for alibis for reasons why we can't do that and often it starts with ourselves yeah
1: well, ourselves and, and i realized like you actually had a printed stack I did. of permission slip.
0: i i started giving them out at this class at the end I'd be like, I'm gonna challenge you and I, I would say I'm gonna challenge you to share it with me. Or you you know, some people are, oh that's so stupid, it's the dumbest thing I've ever heard, okay, fine. But it would be great. I'd hear I remember one right after so I started joining one woman, she's like, I thought it was kind of silly, but I started thinking about it and she said, I did it. I gave myself permission. I called up the engineer and the legal team, and I said, "We've got to go make this bid together for XYZ customer." And everyone said we could never do this together. And we won the business, you know. So I, and then I'd start sharing those stories, and so I kept a stack on my desk. Whenever people would come in and be like, "Uh, "I doubt this is going to happen," I, you know, even if I gave you permission, I feel like that's not going to be enough. You got to do it. So it was kind of hokey, but I liked it as a. As a simple behavior hack. Yeah. This just simple putting yourself on the hook, write yourself
1: a permission slip. Yeah, um, I, I love that. And even in the book, to the point that you, before the book is over, you print one that the reader can fill out for themselves. I thought that was great.
0: Yeah, I put a simple one in the beginning, and then I kind of did a, 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 a deluxe version at the end, which was really, I think, challenging people to you know really take this seriously and have and also have some fun with it.
1: Yeah, that's great. I threw away my entire question set in this area of the, of the interview a while back. What, I mean, knowing that we're, again, attempting to serve people who are in this, they're either in the middle, I like to call it the belly of the snake, of the creative process, getting a book done, or maybe marketed, or they're, they're, they haven't even started, like they haven't crossed the finish line, they've been kicking this idea around, but they're still in this mode of wondering if it's possible, knowing if they're really a writer or a creative or whatever, knowing that that's the person that we're endeavoring to to serve with this part of the conversation, what feels useful to you to talk about?
0: Well, I think my guess is a lot of people listen to this. I mean, many people feel they have a book in them. Yeah. But they are nervous. There's all sorts of reasons why they don't do it. So I think the first thing is just start. Just start it. Just get up. One of the things I found really helpful in the course of working on this book was the whole Julia Cameron artist way of the morning pages. That was something that really helped me get a discipline. Just every day, get up, write three pages. It could be three pages of just gobbledygook. Who cares? Just do it. Mm -hmm. Just start. So I think you don't really know what you have in you and if you don't start. The second thing I think is just why? Like, why are you doing this? I don't know how many thousands of books are published every year. I probably don't really want to know because it's daunting. Why? What, what are you hoping for? You want to be a bestseller? Good luck. You know, do you want to connect with people? Are you really trying to target, you know, are you trying to solve a problem, make a connection? So I think you have to spend a lot of time being clear on what you're trying to accomplish. And maybe it's just very simple of, I want to connect with three people. I don't, you know, I don't, I want to connect in this way. I know there are people like me who will, will resonate with this story. I want to connect with them. So I don't think it has to be this grand. I'm, you know, I think everybody probably our ego gets in and we think, you know, I'm going to create the best selling book of all time and all that. The chances are pretty slim that's going to happen. So my suggestion is to have other reasons you're trying to write the book. And I think it's what you said earlier, Brian. I think good books are from people who want to serve other people. They want to offer some expertise. They want to try to help people's learning journey a bit. Yeah. Give them a different perspective, provoke them a bit. So I do think that be- my experience is the best books have some motive of service. Yeah. Maybe it's just to entertain you. It's a fiction book. I yeah. don't know, but that's a service motive.
1: For sure. When did you first know? Maybe it's a decision, not just an awareness, but when did you first know or what was the moment you decided that you would complete this book?
0: It happened when I was doing those classes at GE with early early managers. Because I just one, I loved those sessions so much. They were so candid. They would challenge me, I challenged them. It was just a really great couple of hours. I, I looked forward to it. But I started to just open up. And I think partly the group there where they saw I was a different kind of business leader, at GE. I was creative, I was a woman, I was a marketer. I I, I came from a, lot, a a very different background and just we trusted each other. And so I realized that by sharing some of those painful lessons, I got something out of it and they did too. And then they shared things and they shared things together. So that was really what got me thinking, Hey, maybe there's a way to capture some of this and share it. And I knew my career at GE was coming to a different Point. and so the ability to kind of have a book as a capstone to kind of summarize what I had done and my GE career seemed, seemed appealing to me. So those, those were kind of the reasons I came to meet an agent who, who said, you know, maybe you really should do a book uh, as I talked to her. It took me a while to get that and I think it was, I had it took me about a year to get to that place of I actually think I have something I can say yeah. and it's a confidence building game as well
1: what i love about what you're sharing here is that you did have things you were sharing all along and these young leaders that you were sharing your experience and maybe your advice or instruction to i think what my experience having talked to many people about writing is is kind of like you're saying that pretty much everybody i think feels they have a book in them but i think it's a lot like a marathon where many people want to have run a marathon right exactly but they don't want to run a marathon yeah exactly and so this idea that we have this kind of dream to do it, but how do you get there? And just like what your example is showing is, well, if you're doing something to serve or express or connect with people now, the odds are good that the book is just, it can be an extension of that. But if you're not doing anything, if you don't have a message or a way of sharing or serving people now, what the heck are you going to put in your book?
0: Yeah, exactly. And, and use those opportunities. Like that class was a test bed. I remember the first time I stood up and told a story about how I failed at something. That was not a story that often got told in those forums. Everybody came and told their glory stories and, you know, what a heroic leader. And I was like, you know, and I remember being so nervous about it. But people were like, I'm glad you said that. We wanted to hear that. I mean, the first time I told it was horrible. I'm, you know, I was nervous, stupid, whatever. But then that became a bit of a, a way to, to kind of get comfortable with my own story. Mm-hmm. And different people have different forms. for. Maybe it's just a journal. Maybe it's really you start a journal, a series of journals, or maybe it's a dialogue. I've been reading, I've later been, been reading a lot of Seneca. Mm-hmm. And I loved Seneca and his letters to Lucilius and how he would maybe think, ah, oh, you know, I wish I had somebody to write to. <laughs> but what a great format for a book. Yeah. So you never know how you might Come into a format that just really resonates with you
1: yeah for sure how did you think of the book how did you structure it how did you decide because you ended up writing it in four parts yeah and I noticed when you gave a keynote today it was three parts yeah and I thought that's interesting that it doesn't exactly mirror but I also know you know I, I do think it's true that books are never finished only published and these thoughts are very often continuing to evolve and, and things like this but at any rate how did you how did you conceive of and settle on a structure for the book.
0: Well this is where Tall was very helpful. Tal Roz, my collaborator, was very helpful. So I had an intent. I wanted it to be personal. I wanted it to be warts and all. I wanted those series of challenges. I knew I wanted the challenges. And again, that was a lot inspired by Twyla Tharp's creative habit. But I had no way of knowing structure. And Tall was very good at, you know, hearing my story. I mean we, we spent about Six weeks together, trying to figure out the format. We tried various different ways, but he's like, "No, here's your here's your formula. You actually have a you have a process. It's these five parts." And so I think it was just talking through it and him being able to synthesize that. And I was too close to it. I I don't know if I had left to my own, I would have probably had fifteen different parts. I mean, who would have wanted to read that? Already it's a lot of pages. Yeah. So that's again where a collaborator or a good editor I think is really helpful in those moments to have somebody outside yourself to help you frame it.
1: Yeah, What? no, no doubt having, I think, and somebody pointed this out to me too, that having a co-writer or an editor who, who does a lot of the, the help, both at the structure and the drafting, somebody pointed out it doesn't ever make the act, and this is, this is kind of an invitation for you to respond if this was true in your experience, but it doesn't necessarily make the act of writing any easier. It makes the writing better, but writing is pretty much always challenging.
0: It was so hard. It was the hardest thing I've done. One of the hardest things I've done. And Tom and I, we got on each other's nerves a lot. I mean, there were times we had huge conflicts. There was one point I thought for sure he was going to walk off the project. <laughs> I wrote him this heartfelt email. I mean, it was we we. It was a tough, tough process.
1: Can you share generally what was the nature of the?
0: Well, we were stuck. We were just stuck, and I had a view of something, and he had another view, and we were just stuck. We got through it, and it's like any kind of collaboration, and so if it was just me saying, like, Tal, you have to do it my way, he would have been gone a long time ago. I had to realize he has something that I don't know how to do, and and he's gifted, and he also said, like, she has a story, and she has a point of view. And I wrote a lot. I mean, we had a really good process. He, he tends to be a person, I, like I work really early morning. I get up at 5 a.m. every morning, just that way. And I would get up and write, my kids are grown, so it was easier for me to get up and, and write. And weekends, I, I really jumped in. I'm very organized, disciplined, mm-hmm. tall, tended to write seemingly at night, and he didn't work a lot on the weekends. He has a, he's you know, very good with his family, and he was like, I'm not gonna work here. Mm-hmm. And so we had to find a way, but it really, we we got into a rhythm of doing that. And so you have to appreciate the goodness of that, but then also when you kind of at loggerheads, work your way through it.
1: What technology, this isn't a trick question, (laughs) but what technology did you find, if not indispensable, very, very useful?
0: Tall was big on Evernote. I was fine with it. I think you can use any format. I've used Quip and others, but having a central repository where he would download all his notes and put everything. And then just good old word. We were just back and forth on words and various versions of it. And our editor got involved, but very incredibly disciplined about version numbers, making sure we kept, we were very good at notes, you know, tall's notes, Beth's notes, Rogers notes, our editor. So we had to be very disciplined about that. Uh, And version control was key.
1: Yeah. There's, I realize this now is a very specialized part of the conversation, but there's nothing like either losing work or spending hours editing something that wasn't even the latest version. Yeah, <laughs> exactly.
0: So and I i mean, I went backwards. And I was cleaning out my closets, and I printed stuff and electronic versions of stuff. And, you know, I, I was maniacal about it. And I think Tall was too. Obviously, he'd written books before, so he had a good system that helped me adapt to it.
1: Yeah, that's great. Did you have any... What you might consider rituals when it came to your writing—did you have anything that you were always sure to do before you began, or anything like that?
0: The morning papers became a ritual for me as a way to just clear my brain. I still do it today, so that's something I've I've kept. I think that would have been probably the, the most consistent ritual of just making sure that I could kind of get into the room, get just get into the
1: zone. And you would do that longhand, longhand before in a, before I start.
0: I'd start writing. Yeah. Interesting.
1: It's interesting. What, in your view, what are the qualities of a great sentence and how can we write more of them?
0: I love words. I just love words. So I actually like editing more than I do writing. I mean, I I like putting, getting the thoughts out. I love noodling. I love playing this word versus that word. In the past six months, I've really, I've been introduced and passionate now about poetry and I think one of the things why I like poetry so much is it's all about the nuance of the word. And yeah. so to me a sentence is very I, I will spend I could spend an hour on a paragraph.
1: Oh yeah. Hours on yeah. a paragraph.
0: So what frustrates me often is just having to get it all out, but I realize that's a part of it.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm with you there and a lot of what you're saying now resonates with me. And I think it shows, you know, that you didn't use the word care, but I think, you know, the care, the attention maybe the effort. And one of the things I did when I when I read your book is I actually bought the audio and I would read the book while listening to you, narrate. And I wonder if you'll talk about that for a moment. What was your experience reading the book as well? That's not a short book oh to my read. Gosh,
0: no, it was uh, again, a hard, hard thing. We were, we were four days in the recording studio. Wow. I had a really tough producer, but she was great. Oh, so I go back and read that she'd make you eat an apple because my maybe my voice my throat was my mouth was dry and what do you mean i didn't read that well um i would have done it differently if i could have i would have read my book out loud and then i would have gone back and worked with my editor again before we finalized it that's what i would have done differently because after you read it you're like oh, i'm not sure i would have kept all that in there yeah, it really dragged at this point. I could, She could also say, like, you're really into this section. And mm, you lag in your energy a little bit here. Something going on? Wow. And so that was a test, I think. So I would recommend that anyone who's thinking of doing a book before you submit it finally with your editor, that you read it out loud.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's such good advice. And although it's not the same, I think there is something about reading those words out loud. I did I found myself using something that only one guest out of nearly seventy now has done. He said that Word has the feature in the accessibility that it will read you the text.
0: Oh really? Interesting.
1: Yeah. So I've used that a few have times you? before I publish just huh. you know, like a newsletter or something. I'm like, I'm glad I did that.
0: I'm gonna and try that with some of my poetry.
1: Yeah, it's pretty cool. So you're writing poetry. Now.
0: I am well, I mean I've written a handful of poems. I'm hardly a poet, but I, I like the challenge of it. I like the nuance of it. I know it's a, very much a medium where reading and writing give you very different feelings of, yeah. of the poem.
1: Yeah, I, I love that too. I love how language, it, for me, it is a form of magic, and the differences between the written and spoken word. It's really remarkable. In fact, um, have you discovered the work of Mark Nepo? I haven't, no. He wrote the book, The Book of Awakening. It was mm-hmm. on Oprah's final season. It was one of her all-time favorite things, but he's a poet and talks about self-expression and He's written a book, didn't mean this for the interview, but I'll just share it, and then we'll, and then we'll wrap up soon. But he, he's written this book called Drinking from the River of Light, and it's about I poetry. It. And he shares this thing, and it gave. And I was just reading it yesterday. It gave me a new view into how magical poetry can be. I wonder if you might like it.
0: Yeah, thank you for the recommendation. Yeah. I'm definitely going to check that out. It's yeah. amazing.
1: Like I read his, his words, and I'm like, this is beautiful. So that's great. Okay, so the last, the last questions that I have for you are about, they're about marketing and promoting and creative work. And obviously, your background in being a chief marketing officer and, and working in communications at NBC and, and this, you have a deep background in that. But I suspect this is maybe a little different, where in a way, you are the product yep. here. And you're, well, so. and you're sharing your well, story. So. What have you found or what advice might you share with others that you have found useful about promoting your own words?
0: Well, I would let me also say this book was difficult on many, many levels. I'm glad I did it. I'm I feel rewarded in many ways, but the promotion was an unexpected difficulty. And again, I'm a promoter. I'm a marketer. This will be easy. My publisher, I'm sure, thought, "Hey, this will be easy for her."
1: Yeah, isn't that what they do? Exactly.
0: <laughs> ah. One, you're just. I'm too. I was too close to it. And that's when it gets really hard, and you've put all your energy into it. I mean, it's so much more work than you'll ever know, writing a book. You know, right? It's so much, I'm sure for you, also writing something that was so personal. I can only imagine the emotion in that. It's just, it's, so you'll you'll never get back that in it, and, and that's not what you're hoping to get out of it, right? So what's, you're not looking for a return on your investment. It's right. not why you do it. If that were the case, you'd never write a book. So, what I had to have a moment where I'd say, like, what am I trying to accomplish here? And often it's with anything good in marketing, I think you try to do play to your unique strengths, your unique value proposition, not try to follow and compete with people who aren't you. So, I'd often have to say, that may work for so and so. That's their kind of book. That's not mine. So and so might be good doing social media with this, but that's not me. So, I kept coming back to what's the core marketing you know, what's your unique value proposition? What are you trying to accomplish, and how are you going to measure that? And then kind of just focus on that and not let everybody in your head all the time saying, this is what you know what you should do, you know what you should do, you know what you should do. So what I'm talking about is a little, I, I'm probably talking about both sides of my mouth because what I'm saying, don't be so close to yourself, ask other people, but have a very clear vision of what you want to do. So what do I mean by that? Early on, you know, do you want to, every bestseller list and, I said I'm going to take that pressure off myself. If, if it does well, sales-wise, great. But I'm not going to go down a path of a bestseller kind of a play. I'm looking to connect with people in different ways. This is the play I'm running. And you have to give up on some things when you do that.
1: Yeah. What did you have to give up?
0: Well, I think you just have to be, go back to saying, what am I trying to accomplish? And, and, okay, the New York Times bestseller list is going to come out. My name is not going to be on it. I'm, not, I'm going to give up on that dream or whatever my ego might have said I wanted to have there. It's not important to me. Mm-hmm. So there are those kinds of things that, and you know from hanging around writers, and you know everybody starts shorthand, how many books did you sell here? What did you do that? And so certain things I had to say, I'm not going to play for myself. I'm not going to get obsessed every week with what the sales numbers are. Yeah. I'm going to, what are the connections I've gotten? What are the emails I'm getting from people? What are the, when I'm out talking to people, what are the, what are the conversations I'm having? What's resonating? Like, that was something that was more important to me. That was just a choice I
1: made. Mm, I think that's a really beautiful perspective.
0: It's hard. I mean, Because yeah. you, again, you got all these voices in your head. And, and finally, I, I'd say you need some time. I mean, now I, the book's been out about 18 months and 16 months, I feel so much differently about it now than I did in the, the intensity of the first six months. Hmm. And I'm much more confident about it now than I was then.
1: Yeah, I suspect that part of that is how it's been received. What What's the reception been like and how's it compared to what you had hoped?
0: Well I think, I, I mean, it didn't help that at the time I put my book out, I ended up leaving GE sooner than I thought. We had a big leadership change, the company hasn't done well for a couple of years, so that. This my book came out at the time when there was just a lot of questions about GE I know it's a great company, I know the work was great, was everything perfect? Absolutely not, but there was that backdrop that made it very difficult and so I had to kind of wade through that so that that was challenging and two years later we've all moved on and so what's resonated most is I think people feel they can relate to the story they're like, yeah. I see myself in that yeah. I realize the struggle in that. And I found some comfort in that quote. I found some comfort in the fact that you didn't do that well or that you tried. And, you know, so the fact that we've connected and that there's some commonality, I think has been very rewarding.
1: That's beautiful. Well, I have come to the end of the questions I had wanted to ask. Is there anything that feels to you like We'd be remiss if we didn't cover.
0: You covered some great territory. It's really been an honor. I feel such a great connection to you, yeah. uh, to, to to your listeners. I can tell you've done a great job in the past couple of years building up a, a listenership for a good reason. Thank you're you. a good, you're a good listener. So well, thank, um, you. thank you for the opportunity. Well, it's been my pleasure.
1: Despite living in an age where we have more comforts and conveniences than ever before, life isn't working for many people